We are right now in the golden age of cocaine. It's not Pablo Escobar, it's now. There is more cocaine than ever. I think there's this realization across much of Latin America and perhaps the world when people really think about it that we're just losing this drug war and what, what are we going to do about it? I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Today I'm chatting to writer and documentary maker Toby Muse about his new book, Kilo, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the Cocaine Cartels. It's a roller coaster ride with Colombia's most famous product as it makes its way from the jungles and the makeshift laboratories to the high seas and out across the world. The story that Toby tells is one of poverty, desperation and violence that knows no bounds, following a trail of corruption, death and destruction as the world's favourite poison makes its way to our shores. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World. You've been making documentaries, have you? In That's right. So I've just come back from, I've just finished a documentary on uh, the drug war in Tijuana. Uh, so I'm not really, I haven't worked a lot in Mexico, but that country's in a bad state. You know, it's just the violence is overwhelming. And we interviewed a policeman and we asked him, look, are you winning? And he said, no, we're not winning this war. We're getting to that stage where people are just openly admit, admitting that it's just beyond them. No one knows what comes next. You know, it's, there's nothing left. There's no secret weapon that they haven't tried yet. I, I think there's this realization across much of Latin America and perhaps the world when people really think about it, that we're just losing this drug war. And what, what are we going to do about it? I mean, that's for sure. Like your book was frightening in a way, I have to say. And it's, it's sort of, um, you can hear your own desperation and that you've been working for 15, 20 years in Colombia. And obviously it's a country that you love, but oh my God, it's such a mess. It, it is. I mean, I think you've, I'm glad you say that because if I was to think about one of the reasons why I wrote that book was the, the frustration and the rage of seeing so many Colombians cut down by this drug war. And it just continues. And it's all being done in our name as well. It's all being done in the name of you and me in order to prevent that cocaine reaching us. These Colombians are dying and it's, it doesn't have to be that way. There has to be another way of doing this. People always throw, you know, the oh, legalise it at me here, say in Ireland. And but you can't do it. Anything, individual countries, everybody needs seems to work together. I mean, the legalisation thing isn't the answer either, because you still have you legalize it in Europe, even cocaine in Europe, and you have all the problems that it's causing on the way to Europe. So that's not an answer at all. I mean, do you have any idea yourself? Have you any suggestions or? No, I mean, I, I think you're right about, I, I, again, I, I leave the policy to smarter people than me. You know, I'm just reporting from what I've seen on the ground. I'm a reporter. I'm not a policy person. So I don't have the solution, but I think you're right to zero in on this, that it's a global, it's a global solution. And I think we've been too 
selfish in just saying to Colombia, go solve that problem. We're the cause of the problem because this market thrives on demand. And so I do want to be clear about there are a number of factors that has led Colombia to produce more cocaine than ever in history. We are right now in the golden age of cocaine. It's not Pablo Escobar. It's now. There is more cocaine than ever. And I'm clear in my book about all of the failings by Colombia that has led us to this point. But I don't think the world gets to look at Colombia and say, you have failed. Because Colombia can turn to the world and say, what have you done about demand? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, there's a heavy helicopter coming in over. I don't know if you, um, you're hearing that, but just... Um, right. Yeah, that's okay. The, the, the world has done nothing to reduce demand. And Colombia can quite rightly look at Europe and look at America and say, shame on you. What have you done? And demand is going up. I mean, new reports all the time are showing that the demand is just skyrocketing. There's nothing happening to reduce it. I mean, I think what I got from your from your book, Kilo, was a sense of almost, you know, from farm to fork with the product that um, it's sort of an organic way of looking at, at it, where it's coming from. And if it was another product, if it was a, a meat or something, would we eat it? Probably not. We'd be more offended by what has happened along its route to to our dinner tables than we seem to be with cocaine. But um, it's fascinating. You started off in a place along the Venezuelan-Colombian border. You started your journey there and you decided you'd follow a kilo of cocaine until it set sail for the US and presumably the same routes take it ultimately to Europe and to Ireland. So it sounded like a beautiful part of Colombia, but so much awfulness and tragedy happening there in the name of Coke. What, can you explain to me what, you know, what the place was like and, and what sort of people you met there at the beginning of this journey? Absolutely. So the beginning of the journey, I start in a place called Catatumbo. And this is northeastern Colombia, as you say, right on the border with um, Venezuela. This is a wild beautiful part of the country, many jungles, mountains. And uh, Catatumbo means uh, in the indigenous tongue, the land of lightning, because there are more lightning strikes in Catatumbo than anywhere else on the planet. Scientists regularly used to go to this zone on the other side of the border in Venezuela to record lightning strikes if you wanted and so every night you had these phenomenal storms in the heavens above, just battering these huts that we were staying in. The people are amazing, as they always are in Colombia, very, um, very welcoming, very warm. And it's sad because they've been so completely abandoned by their own government. I mean, the government does nothing for these people. So they're super resilient. They have had to depend on themselves their entire life. So every person you meet can be a vet, can be a mechanic, can be a farmer, can be a chef, whatever the situation demands, because if they don't do it, no one else will do it. And to give you an idea of just how abandoned these people have been, we were staying in the general store. It, it, it's a, uh, I should say, it's, it, there's not even towns where I was um, staying. It'd be an individual farm along a dirt track. Then you'll be another farm, another farm. And everybody there is a farmer. Most of them grow coca the raw material that's used to make cocaine. To give you an idea of just how abandoned this place was, they had spent three years on this dirt track with a toll. 
taking money from people who passed along the toll, uh, the dirt track, in order to raise money to build a school. Where was the government? It was they themselves had to raise the money. And where did that money come from on that dirt track? Cocaine. So cocaine is building schools. That's the madness of this. So these people are out there. Why do they grow coke up? Because there's no infrastructure. Again, I repeat, it's a dirt track. There's bridges are made over rotting pieces of uh, rotting logs covering a stream. There's one smallish river. The only way to get across is this kind of ferry that the, they themselves have made, which is these barrels on top of planks of wood. So you couldn't cross a car, but you could cross like five or six motorbikes. Imagine that. That's the size. So if you've got, let's say, a ton of pineapples, how are you going to get that to market? And to give you an idea of how far away things are, because there's no highways there, I traveled from the nearest town, which is a town called Tibu. It's small enough. It's 15,000 people live there. Tibu, to get to where I was, was took us six hours. When I looked on the map, that was 30 kilometers. That's how treacherous this terrain is. So answer me, how does someone take six, a, a ton of pineapples, a ton of apples, a ton of carrots? How do they get them to market? They can't. Whereas the coca leaves are light in, in weight and easier to carry. And you process the coca leaves into a brick of coca paste. You put it in a backpack and you're on your way to market. So I think that gives you an idea of why so many of these farmers end up growing coca. Is there electricity? There's not. Uh, the electricity comes from generators. So uh, where we were, it was the social. I, I mean, imagine this is it, it's so it's so it's such a wilderness. The social hotspot is the general store. And so the general store, four times a week, will crank up the generator. They'll watch their television. People come from miles around, gently out of the dusk. They'll pull up a plastic chair. They'll sit outside of the home. But the people who own the home will keep the door open to allow people to spend their night watching TV through an open door. They'll all watch their telenovela. And these were people who had spent all day picking coca. And it was just this really beautiful little scene. Everyone comes together. They watch the telenovela, telenovela, the soap opera. They drink a few beers. No one gets rowdy. Then they go home. They drift off. They sleep. They work again. Come the weekend, then they'll crack open the rum. They'll be dancing. But no, the only generator is the only electricity comes by a generator. There's no running water. There, a shower is a big barrel of water and you scoop water out and you wash yourself that way. Uh, the temperature is is nice and hot, about 30 degrees every day. Um, so, you know, it's it's very pleasant. But another interesting thing about living in the tropics is the sun rises at six and it sets at six every day without fail. So from 6.15, it's night. You've got to find your enjoyment there. It sounds to me, and a place obviously where crime has thrived because of the poverty, but some years ago I was in the Philippines on a investigating some of the sex for sale industry out there and a similar rural little village outside Manila where I arrived to find people living with no electricity. I mean, just like something when I was in school, we would have gone down to a, uh, you know, a set up place to, to see the, how people used to live. It's what it was like. And of course, that's where the, the kids were being plucked from to go work in the in the sex industry because these people had no education. They were, nobody was getting rich out of it. And similar here, none of those people um, in that, that beautiful, nonetheless, place are getting rich from cocaine. 
That's absolutely correct. And I think that's a really important point to make. I think up to the way I see it is you've got this chain of cocaine and basically up to the farmer who produces the coca paste in his homemade laboratory. These are people who are just struggling to get by. And they'll tell you, and they actually use that exact phrase that you use. No one's getting rich off this. People are surviving. From the next stage onwards, though, I think they do become criminals. And I think Colombian society does draw that distinction. They look at the person who picks coca and say, what else is this person going to do? The farmer. No one's really interested in sending those people to prison. But I do think the person who buys the coca paste can legitimately be called a, a, a criminal. And I should have mentioned as well in describing Catatumbo, the law there are the armed narco militias. And in Catatumbo, there's all of them that are in Colombia. Just to give you an idea of how complicated this is. You have the dissidents of the FARC. So the FARC had a historic peace deal in 2016. We think about 10% of the FARC basically said, no, peace is not for us. We're going to keep on. But basically, they really got even more heavily into cocaine trafficking. You have the ELN, which is the National Liberation Army. You have the EPL. Oh, the National Liberation Army was inspired by the Cuban Revolution. You have the Maoist Popular Liberation Army. Then you have the uh, AGC, which is a, a, a far-right paramilitary organization. So you have all of these different groups fighting for control of the area. And the thing about Colombia is when these groups go to war, it's always the farmers who are caught in the middle. And there's the old... There's the old sad story of Colombia is that a group of narco militias come through and they stop at a farmer's farm and they say, hey, do you have some water you could share with us? He gives them because they're holding guns. They move on. The army comes around and says, we've heard you've been collaborating. You were giving. So they're caught in the middle. And what they always want is just for one group to be in control. If the state, obviously everybody wants the state to do what it should be doing. But the Colombian state just doesn't function there. It doesn't exist. It's a whisper. It's a rumor. Bogota, the capital, cannot control those lands. So the so then the next best thing is just one armed group to be in control. Because then you know what you're doing. If you have a problem, the armed group works with the community. If one of your soldiers insults my family, I can go to the commander, you know. But if there's various groups, that's the nightmare these uh, farmers are living through. And that's the situation there in Catatumbo. So the FARC, and we'd be very familiar with the similar situation here in Ireland when the IRA laid down their arms, the dissidents rose up and we've numerous groups. They, you know, operate under the guise of, of a political, having a, a political belief, but they don't. They're hired out as hitmen and enforcers to the drug gangs and that's all they do. So we've a, a, a bit of an understanding of that going on in the background there. Um, FARC was at war in Colombia for 50 years and it started out to, uh, you know, fight against inequality. <laughs> it's obviously, unfortunately, got nowhere in those decades. That's correct. And um, I was at this historic 10th conference. The book actually begins at the historic 10th yes. conference of the FARC, where the FARC is going to vote on the peace. And I would ask the FARC, look, what have you done in these 50 years? You've caused... Let me take a step back. If you were to write on a piece of paper, let me take even a step further back. Yeah. 
When the conflict was raging, people would say to me, I would write a story and they'd say, Jesus, like you've still got guerrilla groups, you've still got rebel groups. What are they doing there? And I would think if you look at Colombia just on a piece of paper, the concentration of wealth, the historic use of political violence, uh, the concentration of power, how many live in misery in that country, you would almost think, my God, it would be a surprise if there wasn't a revolutionary guerrilla group fighting to change things. So you have the FARC, you have, if you look at the 80s across all of Latin America, you have all of these guerrilla groups fighting against these corrupted oligarchies. The end of the Soviet Union, a lot of the funding and moral support collapses. So you see all of these peace processes across Latin America, with the exception of Colombia. Why? Because the FARC had decided to get into the cocaine business, whereas all of these other guerrilla groups were laying down their weapons because they didn't have any financing. The FARC was expanding. Now, how close, how deep were the FARC into the, into the, um, into the drug trade? The FARC say their position was they only ever taxed coca sales. So in the land they controlled, farmers would grow coca, cartel people, drug traffickers would come in, deals would be made, and the FARC would take 10 or 15%. The government and their enemies say the FARC were absolutely neck deep in trafficking cocaine. That they were the narcos. That they themselves were narcos, that they were overseeing shipments themselves. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, I think certain parts of the FARC were heavily involved in drug trafficking. Others weren't. I think there was plausible deniability by the leadership of the FARC to say. And I do think it's important to note that most of the money the FARC did make from drug trafficking has gone back into the organization for the revolution. They never went full narco with gold chains and hiring um, high-priced escorts to fly down and bring brandy and sports cars. They never did that. Well, a few did, but that was the minority. Yes. So I do think that's important. And that cocaine does have this ability to corrupt. Once the FARC got involved in cocaine, then they started chasing more cocaine because it was such an important source of income. So if you look at the Civil War in, say, the early 2000s, when the FARC is fighting the far-right paramilitaries, the fighting is most intense in the zones with most coca. So that's what cocaine will do. You kind of use cocaine and you think, oh, okay, I'm just going to use cocaine as a tool to bring in some money. Well, no, cocaine's using you. She's going to take you over and make you her servant. And that's what the FARC became. They became a bodyguard for the cocaine industry. So take us back to your jungle there in Catacumba. Um is that where the labs are that turn the coca leaves into the paste? So that All of that exists up in this very impoverished but fertile land in the jungles. So the coca paste, because I think a lot of people who take cocaine don't realise how that's made. It's made with gasoline and various other um chemicals are, are thrown into it to make it. Indeed, it's ammonia, there's acid is used. So basically every farmer is responsible for growing the coca. They'll hire pickers to come in and pick um, the coca leaves. And the farmer will have set up his own laboratory. A laboratory, I'm putting air quotes on that because it's just four wooden poles, a kind of uh, crates and barrels. The farmer is responsible for turning that ton of coca leaves into roughly a kilo, a kilo and a half of coca paste. Now, you can't really do anything with coca paste. It's one, it's one step in the process short of pure cocaine. So what they do is they take this coca paste, they sell it now to the narco militias at this stage in Catatumbo. 
the narco militias themselves will buy it from the farmers at a price that the narco militias are deciding. The narco militias will then take it to a much more sophisticated laboratory, but it's still deep buried in the jungle. Don't think about kind of a pharmaceutical, clean, no, 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 no. This is, you know, again, it's a step up. It costs about $50,000. It's where you see dozens and dozens of microwaves where they're, uh, where they're producing the cocaine, that's when they'll put the stamp on the, each individual kilo of cocaine, and that's when the narco militia will then normally sell it to a cocaine cartel. So what are your farmers getting for their kilo? Well, this is another interesting point. The farmer is roughly receiving about 1.6 million Colombian pesos. That would be about, it's about $400. But when you take out the farmer's expenses, He's actually ended up with about $150 per hectare of coca. He can harvest that about once every three months, let's say. He doesn't have many more than one hectare because then it's too easy to spot by the police. The idea is you have just one hectare, maybe two hectares, but the age of having like 50 hectares of coca, that's over because the police can just swoop in. They'll see it from the sky. So you're trying to remain invisible. So really, this man is making $150 every three months. That's not a lot of money, even in the wilderness of Colombia. And the reason why the farmers now want out of this business, I've never seen the farmers more eager to get out of the cocaine business than in my last trip there. Because that price of that price of $400 total for the kilo of coca paste is the same price they were paid 20 years ago. Why has the price not, price not gone up? Because now the narco militias control entirely the town. They established the price. In the past, there was an open market. The farmer could say, uh, well, you know, he's offering me a little bit more. The farmer can't push it too much. These are still men with guns. But, you know, he could play around a little bit. I, I want to sell here. Now they don't have a choice. So now all of these farmers are tired of the whole business. They want out. Because it's not even bringing in that, that much money. No, their families are living on $50 a month, essentially. The narco militias take it to, I think your next step along the path is to a very interesting town called La Gabara. Am I right? La Gabara, exactly. So the narco militias take it into La Gabara. Well, the farmer will bring it into okay. La Gabara. It's kind of a hub where the sales will go down. So it's uh, the farmers will come in from all different parts of the countryside to come into these little cocaine hubs. It's these tiny little towns that have been completely overtaken by the cocaine um culture. It's, it's, it's an entire lifestyle at this point. And these towns are dotted around Colombia. So that's where the farmer will come in. And it's this whole tradition they have. They'll bring in the kilo of coca paste. They'll sell it on a Saturday morning. And then it's part of the lifestyle that they'll spend the rest of the weekend there with prostitutes, buying uh, booze, having a big party. But again, the money is not there the way it was because 20 years ago, $400 was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. These men would have a big night out. They would buy a bottle of whiskey. They would invite their friends. They're going to be the big man. Now, $400 is just not what it was. So it's kind of a few beers. It's this kind of, they go to these kind of grim brothels and it's this kind of just grim. It's, it's, it's kind of depressing. I mean, on the, on the other hand, it has the feel of a Wild West town. If you've ever seen that HBO uh, program, Deadwood, about what the gold rush was. That's what it feels like. There's no law. There's prostitutes everywhere. There's everyone's getting drunk. There's men passed out under tables. 
it's a weird, wild experience to be there, uh, especially on the weekend. And you, you would have got, you would have been sanctioned to go in. So you contact somebody, obviously, to say, because a stranger doesn't just rattle up to a town like that or a journalist. So how do you go about that when you, 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 you obviously know you have your contacts over there? Do you contact the militia? No, I, I, in this case, I didn't have the contacts directly with the militia. For security of the person, someone locally okay. who knows people uh, was able to kind of send a message and say, look, you know, uh, this person has been visiting my area. And the person will frame it this way as well. Look, he's here to show the problems we're all living. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And, and I come in, and I say, look, this is what I'm doing. I'm showing the reality here. I'm not coming in to badmouth this group or that group. I just want to show what real life is like for the people who live here. And most people are like, yeah, sure, don't worry. You nonetheless need safe passage. You need to get safe passage before you can't just go into a town like that. No, you couldn't just roll in. That's what I mean. Someone had sent messages before saying, look, you know, this person is with me. I would like to bring this person there. And yeah, you and because even just traveling there, we would have been stopped. They've got these little spies, the narco militias everywhere. They're called sappers, snitches. So it could be kids in the street who are the spies. They were monitoring my progress because I could have been for the DEA. I could have been for the CIA. So it's really important to be very upfront from the beginning. I'm a journalist. This is what I'm doing without going into too many details. But to be And you clear. gave us a brilliant and vivid description of that town and that sort of Wild West feel to it. People with AK-47s hanging off their shoulders narcos fighting drunkenly over women and various other things is quite quite an incredible description of it it was it came alive to me when i was reading the book i have to say so your kilo from there goes next to well one of the places it goes to was to mako port yeah exactly yeah so uh there's kind of two ways that the that the kilo will go if it's heading towards the united states it will most likely leave the pacific coast if it's traveling to Europe, though, it will often go via Venezuela. It will go via the Caribbean and it may pass through Africa. The normal destination is Holland. Rotterdam is an important port in all of this. But it, my kilo is heading towards the United States. So it heads to this Pacific town called Tumaco. It's on the Pacific coast. It's Afro-Colombian. It's this phenomenal town with these amazing people. And the Pacific coast has given so much of Colombia's phenomenal musical culture. Colombia has some of the finest music culture on the planet. And the Pacific Coast has been responsible for a lot of that. But the Pacific Coast has also been long abandoned by the central government. People live in misery. They've got these wooden huts that are built on top of the sea. And you have these tiny little neighborhoods above the sea. So that's where people bathe, but that's also their toilet. Uh, And there's these wooden planks that connect the wooden huts that are on top. If a big tsunami ever came, Tumaco's done. I mean, it's gone. But it's also this it's also this extremely important exit point for the uh, for the cocaine. And so I went down there uh, to see what the police were doing. That's also where the police are doing the manual eradication. That's where they and these, you know, what would you call them? Just day laborers will go on three month missions, three months. They go into the jungle and for three months they move, they set up camp. Every 10 days they break down camp and move another five kilometers and rip out all of the coca they come across. That's the way of destroying the coca. With their hands? With their hands, yeah, or shovels. But it is manual eradication. They'll take it out. And that's seen as kind of the best way of destroying the coca because each, each, 
is each uh, bush is ripped out by the roots. But what happens is the narco militias know where they're going to be because they're in the zone. They're obviously going to arrive to a nearby uh, field. So the narco militias plant these IEDs, these landmines, throughout these fields. And the results have been horrendous. The toll it has taken on these laborers and on the police has caused the police to be really bitter because they've lost friends, the day laborers have been blown up by these IEDs. And there's these horrifically inventive ways of like they've strapped IEDs onto a donkey and pushed it in and the donkeys wandered into the middle of a camp and blown up killing people. So and each of these IEDs costs one dollar to make. So there's no short supply on them. So the narco militias, and it's this way of slowing down the police, but it's also just this blood war. You take my coca, I'm going to make you bleed. And it's, it's just, it's bitter, it's savage. When you hear the figures of the amount of cocaine leaving Colombia, the idea of human beings going in to rip out plants one by one just seems nonsensical almost. Is it really effective at all? So there's, 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 just to kind of go quickly over what the government can do, there's the manual eradication, which I just described. The tool that the government and Donald Trump really wants to get back to is aerial fumigation. That's when you have these little planes that fumigate and they fly over um, these fields and they can do hundreds of hectares in a day. The problem is, though, that the World Health Organization in around 2015 said one of the chemicals they were using, one of the uh, herbicides, could cause cancer. So that means the Colombian government suspended its use. Well, that's that's one of the reasons why we're seeing the world record crop of coca we're now seeing. It's not the only reason. They want to tell you it's the only reason, but it certainly has played a part. But fumigation isn't the silver bullet that everyone's telling you it is, because even when Colombia was fumigating everywhere it wanted, this was about 15 years ago, it still never dropped down beneath 30, 40,000 hectares of coca. The final way of getting the farmers to stop planting coca is voluntary substitution. That's where the government comes and sits down with them and says, look, we're going to pay you some money. This is going to be a two-year project. We're going to pay you a stipend to get you off coca. As soon as you rip out the last bush, we come in and verify it. We're going to pay you some money, and we're also going to give you some money to create a project, to build a chicken farm, whatever. And we're going to build roads that connect your farm to the town so you can have a hope of transporting your merchandise. That was what the peace process in 2016 was supposed to do. That was the dream. And they were doing it. They were doing it across the country. In my book, I went to a town which was the pilot, this town called Briseño. These farmers have been, the farmers are ignored, they're marginalized, they live on the outskirts of society. But these men and women were so proud that they had been chosen to be the pilot plan. They were like, the future of Colombia, everyone's looking at us. They all proudly went and ripped out their crops. They were working for a new Colombia in peace. And to see their faces, they were so proud. And then the government just gave up on it. After about the first year, the money kind of slowed down. They tried to get approval for their special projects. And, you know, then the paperwork kind of came in and then they wouldn't get approved. And the government just lost interest. And the people of that town were so bitter about it. Because once you raise a man or a woman's hopes and you make them feel important, and then at the end, you just turn your back on them, that does something to someone. And the violence escalated so quickly, the United Nations stopped 
being able to go into different parts of Colombia and verify that the farmer had ripped out all of their crops. So it just kind of sputtered, stuttered to a halt. And I mean, is that partly to do with this deeply embedded corruption that has, I mean, cocaine really has brought to Colombia and into the political system? Like, why didn't they care to to continue that? It sounds like such a sensible out of the three, out of the three things you have outlined there. Of course, that has to be the sensible one. You're going to give them a new business, a new crops to grow, you know, a new new options for farming. Why do they not commit to it and continue? I, I think I, I just I couldn't give you that answer. It just was. I couldn't give you a satisfactory answer about why the government just kind of lost enthusiasm. The peace process was constantly under attack from the right wing in the country. They hate this peace process. They always have. They, one of the intellectual godfathers of the right wing in Colombia said at one point, our plan is to reach power and tear this peace process into shreds. He later walked back and now, you know, they play this game where they say, oh, well, no, we we just want to make adjustments. It's not true. That was never the case. They wanted the FARC to unilaterally surrender and they were going to have surrender terms. That was their ideal peace process. And the FARC said, that's not going to happen. We're going to be partners in this peace process. So the right wing have been consistently chipping away. But that doesn't excuse the government just losing focus. And there was so much of this peace process. There's so little of that peace process has actually been implemented. Because I think this is not only to take a partisan a partisan line on this because the left and the right just screw things up continually. But the right wing really did polarize the issue of the peace process. It became a 50-50 thing. Instead of a country coming together, like what I imagine South Africa was after apartheid, that idea of a truth commission. And yeah, there were going to be some enemies of the peace process, some enemies of reconciliation, but on the whole, the country being united. We needed that image of the biggest right winger hugging the gorilla and then both saying we're going to put that in the past and the right wing successfully managed to poison that well to make it a political thing 50 50 so the government lost kind of enthusiasm the security situation started to deteriorate very quickly because the government hadn't been able to reach places like Katadumbo and impose a minimum of law and order and it just all quickly unraveled and we're living with the consequence of that now and also, I suppose you, you've mentioned earlier that these are forgotten people. They've never been supported by their government with education, with roads, with nothing. So they're voiceless. And you going into the, those sort of areas obviously is, um, you know, gives them a voice. At least here we are talking across the planet about about them and what's happened to them. So at least that's one positive maybe we can pull from it. Absolutely. And these people as well... It- it was it's it's heartbreaking because you know these people have suffered so much they've suffered so much and you look at a place called Bohaya Bohaya is a town an afro-colombian town and it has this horrendously tragic history that there was heavy fighting between the farc this was about 15 years ago it was heavy fighting between the farc and the far right paramilitaries the people ran into this church because they were fleeing the fighting and the FARC fired off a... Um, <clears throat> the FARC had this homemade mortar system called uh, Tatucos, and the FARC fired off these were gas cylinders that they would weaponize. They fired them off. 
I don't know why this is getting to me today. Um, and it killed something like 120 people who were <clears throat> who were sheltering in that uh, in that church. It killed it killed something like 120 of them. Those people voted something like 90% for this peace process. They were able to they were able to see and think, and put that past them and say we have suffered more than anyone else. This country deserves peace. And they overwhelmingly would support the peace process. They sent these women to the peace ceremony to sing this Afro-Colombian song about their experiences. And it was just heartbreakingly sad. These people who had lived on the margins and saw the chance of a new Colombia. I don't know why this is getting to me so much today, Um, but it's just, it's the frustrations of what could have been. And these people saw the chance to live in dignity, to live in peace. And that was all going to be possible. There was this moment where that was going to be possible for Colombia. And four years later, we're now seeing just the war is returning to so much of that country. The Pacific Coast, where the Afro-Colombians live, Boheya, is being hit tremendously bad by uh, this war. And it just, it didn't have to be this way. The, you talk in the book about the size and the vastness of the Pacific Ocean, which is, uh, you know, extraordinary when you when you think of it. And on that ocean, more poverty, people, fi- fishermen trying to, you know, bring this tons and tons of this drug in 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 very unseaworthy boats across shark infested seas in order again to feed their families while at the other end of this journey you have rich um people who want a good night out it's 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 very difficult to kind of uh, weigh up the two and and to understand that nobody seems to care about these people I mean, the stories that you have in, in, in the book about the, those fishermen and those people from the port towns and they're taking these risks. And and then, of course, the U.S. Coast Guard are patrolling it. If they're caught by them, they can be brought back to the States and jailed for, you know, a squillion years, which is seems to be their system. None of it is fair. Absolutely. As you say, as so many of pe- so many of these people do get into the business because of desperation. But I think some also the, the Colombians will talk about this culture of easy money as well. I think that is an element. I think there are people who are. So in the book, I meet uh, one man who he's illiterate. He's been a fisherman all of his life, which is. Um, but recently, because of overfishing, the fishermen are finding it that much more difficult. It's hard to sustain a family. His wife contracted some disease. He wasn't even sure. He was illiterate himself. He wasn't sure the name of the disease, but it paralyzed his wife. So he ended up going to the uh, loan sharks. And he takes out about $1,000, if I'm not wrong. And with that, he buys the medicine his wife needs. His wife starts to recover but he's late on the first payment. So the loan sharks come in, they kick in the door of his hut. They put a gun to his wife's head at midnight and say, final warning. As in always across the world, a loan shark cannot let someone not pay because that's then no one will pay. So they're serious about it. It's called the gota gota system. It's the drip drip. They call it the loan sharks. So he, 
And cocaine looks for these people who are in dire straits. And it feeds off desperation. So he puts out the word that he needs to make $1,000. And someone's like, oh, okay. Well, I've got a job for you. These men will pay, will receive $20,000. And there's various ways of getting the cocaine across the Pacific Ocean. One is just to go all out on a speedboat and just go for like 48 hours. You're going from the Colombian Pacific Coast all the way to what they like is the Mexican-Guatemalan border. There you hand off to the Mexican cartels. They'll get it across the border into the United States. Um, or the other way is to go into these semi-subs, they're called, which are almost submarines. Imagine the design of a submarine, but they're not, they don't have an oxygen system. So they have uh, just a single uh, pipe that will come above the surface. That's all. And that will bring in the oxygen, but also expel the exhaust because the motors are running underwater. So there's two options you can go. You can just go like a madman. And this man ended up going like a madman. He was paid uh, $20,000. You receive $10,000 um, ahead of time because the dangers are so apparent. No one would do it just, oh, I'll pick up. So he can leave the money with his family and you'll get the other if you make it. I'm on the Coast Guard. The US Coast Guard basically acts like the policeman in that zone. They police the zone. There's about five or six um, of these uh, ships that are patrolling the entire Eastern Pacific. It's one of the loneliest spots on the planet, the Eastern Pacific Ocean. As you say, sharks were just swim around our uh, ship, whales, dolphins. But those five or six ships, it's like the equivalent, that Eastern Pacific is so vast, it's like the equivalent, someone made the the comparison, that's like having five or six police cars to patrol the entire United States. There's so much that is not getting through. They have their spy planes, sure, but, you know, the majority of the cocaine is getting through. Um, And this man ended up that, yes, we were there on the Coast Guard. I was there as they captured this man. He was with two other men. They were carrying, I can't remember, I think it was two or three tons of cocaine that had been packed into this go-fast jet boat. And they were just going as fast as they could. And yet they they were ended up being condemned for between, I think it was 15, 20 years. And, you know, this man was 55, this fisherman. He'll be, what, 75? When he gets out, his family won't get a visa to see him. So he did this all for his wife. And it's very possible he will never see his wife ever again. That's very possible. You know, these fishermen don't have healthy lifestyles. They work, their physical work, but there's a lot of rum. There's a lot of bad diets. They don't often live to be old. So it's just very sad, these stories. These stories of desperation, you see. And... um for all the, I mean, obviously you love Colombia and its people. I can, I can hear that from you. But for, for all that, there's also some really nasty characters there. City of Medellin, where Pablo Escobar was from, who loved his city and gave to it, uh, but also took more from it maybe than anybody else in history. Um, how horrible and how evil are these narcos? I mean. How do they become what they become, the 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 hitmen, the, you know, we hear such awful stories about their violence and everything. How do they, how do so many of them seem to be formed in, in that country? I, yeah, I think it's important to note the best people I've ever met in my life, the most honest, intelligent, hardworking people have been Colombia, but also 
in my life, the worst people I've ever met have also ended up being Colombian, just in terms of just the ease of killing. And unfortunately, in certain parts of the country, life doesn't, that life is worthless. I think you have this, you have to go back to the massive concentration of political power, of wealth in that country. The country can often feel like it's feudal in that sense, that you have this oligarchy that just has everything. And then the scraps are left over for the rest of the country to fight over. It's a long history of political violence. Cocaine was, Colombia was violent before cocaine. Again, because you have this weak control by the central government. So you end up having fiefdoms across different parts of the country. If you sit down in any halfway sized town with someone smart, say a teacher at the school, someone who knows what's going on, and just say, hey, who are the families that control this? They'll list them. You, you can't do that in Washington, D. I I mean, well, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe this is a, a, not an important comparison, but every, every zone has its families that have historically controlled it. They'll put the mayors in, they'll put the governors in, they'll put the local politicians. So it's this concentration of power by the elites. And I think that creates this very violent society. And with cocaine, it's made, it's made these careers possible. A career as a contract killer is possible because of the dysfunction. So people are opened up to this. It makes it viable. And contract killing is so important because that's the way cocaine settles its problems. Gangsters cannot go to a court and sue each other if there's a problem for obvious reasons. So they resort to hitmen. They're called sicarios. And they're absolutely the lifeblood. They're not a byproduct of the industry. They're the heart of the industry. It's the way they impose order in cocaine. The hitman I speak to, um, he understood that. He says, we're the order. We impose order. So, but I think it's about exposure. So just to give you an example, drug mules, we know drug mules coming from Colombia, people who are paid 5,000 euros to swallow a, um, swallow a kilo of cocaine. That's normally what they swallow, one kilo, a kilo and a half. Sometimes they'll hide it in their, in their suitcases. I was there when an American was caught by the police, that whole dramatic moment where they find the cocaine in this American teenager's suitcase. But I do want to mention one thing. It's about being exposed to it. So Colombians were the drug mules for most of the cocaine industry. But now Colombia has such a huge amount of tourism. Foreigners are getting exposed to it. And they're making the same decisions. And it's not often out of desperation. It's because they want the money. So now a full third of all drug mules who are getting caught at Bogota's El Dorado airport are foreigners. You know, it's being exposed to that easy money. So sometimes people are desperate. Sometimes they have that sick wife. But sometimes people just want the money. You know, it's like the criminals in London, criminals in D.C. So I think that's what attracts the cartel people. Well, it's the money that corrupts, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I know. And that becomes, I speak to a policeman in the book who obviously off the record, well, not off the record, but anonymously said, we have a tremendous problem in the police with corruption because the amount of money at stake. And, and just, to, I, I think this is, you get an idea of why this business is so successful when you understand the terms, the, the money involved. A kilo of cocaine in Colombia will cost roughly $1,600, roughly. If you get that to the most extreme, the highest, if you get that to New Zealand, which according to countries that list the price of drugs is the most expensive place on the planet for cocaine, 
that kilo is now worth something like $230,000. Tell me what other business has that kind of markup. I mean, even in London, there's 150,000 pounds selling it retail, one kilo, 50 pounds a gram. You times it by three because when they've done... um, When they've tested the cocaine in London, it's roughly 30% pure. So you take one brick of pure cocaine, $1,600 in Colombia, you put that in London, you cut it, so now you've got three kilos, and you're selling each one of those for 50 pounds. That's 150,000 pounds. That's life-changing money. It is. Look, Ireland, essentially a wealthy country compared to, well, obviously not to Colombia, but to to the the poorer areas of Colombia, here, there was a, a system going for a long time until it was stopped where they were drug mules carrying cocaine from Ireland to Australia because in Australia it was four times the value. So they were taking a long haul flight. I mean, people who didn't really particularly need the money, they certainly didn't need it to feed themselves. They needed it to buy a Rolex watch or to, you know. Exactly. So, yeah, it's all relative, but it's the money. I think the lure of the money, there's nothing like it. But I mean, listen, your book, Kilo, has been a fascinating read. And um, I hope people go out and buy it here because it's, it's um, you know, it's it's you're set in Colombia, but you're you're sending your Kilo away to to the US and, and on to Europe and it eventually arrives here. And I think I think if more people educate themselves on the kind of violence and the corruption and, and the poverty that's behind that little line of coke, maybe they might think twice. So, Toby, thank you very much. Very interesting conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent.